previously on Jane Danger, a bird in a cage. I visited the cemetery after leaving Global Studios and saw exactly what Galvin had said. George's tombstone placed between his two parents and described him as being dead by the age of eight. I'm David Haas, LAPD. Where are you going? If he really was murdered here in LA, then there's a police report, correct? I placed the box down on the table and opened it up. Nothing but one file lay inside and two pieces of torn clothing wrapped in plastic bags. Is that all the interviewed witnesses described the same person to the T. They all described a black man, early 20s, dressed in all black attire, that shot the three with a revolver, 45. He wasn't wearing a mask or anything to cover his face. The person arrested for the crime was Marshall Jackson. I wish I could show you more, but the rest of their things were taken to a storage unit. One thing's for sure, I had my next objective, to get into that storage unit. Chapter 7 An Untampered Coincidence I had Jean call me a taxi cab to pick me up from the hotel. It only cost me $2.50 to drive three miles to the storage unit where the Meads things were kept. It cost me another dollar to have him wait for me while I went inside, though money really wasn't a concern, so I tipped the guy a tin for his cooperation. The heat hit me like a brick as soon as I walked into the trailer that was doubling for the main office of the storage facility. At the front desk was an overweight balding man who looked like he was a hitman 20 years ago but had since then let himself go. His suit was sloppily pieced together with a tie that was hanging loosely off his neck. When he first heard the ringing of the bell that signaled I had entered, he proceeded to glance up at me before returning to his newspaper. I must have not been much to look at for he pretended like I wasn't there. The longer I was in the trailer, the more I understood just why he looked the way he did. His shirt was drenched with sweat, his tie loosened from the neck down, hanging off his body like a wet towel. I quickly loosened my collar's grip from around my neck, then took a look around to realizing that this tiny office was only cooled by two electric fans perched on shelves high in the back. I placed my private investigator badge down on the counter right next to the funny pages he was reading, hoping this man wouldn't have the brains to see that I had no jurisdiction in this state. I'm here to take a closer look at the storage unit of the Meads. There's no storage unit under that name, he said with a grunt. Impossible. I was told that their stuff has been held in this facility for 20 years. Wouldn't know nothing about it. All I know is what's on this ledger. 
He pulled out the ledger and showed it to me. I flipped through the pages and found nary a hint of the Mead's existence. I was about to close the book as I skimmed, but the last name of the very last page caught my eye. I tried to contain my surprise as I noticed that Storage Unit 27 was leased under the name Marley. Reginald. It took me a moment to remove my wide eyes from the ledger and look back up at the clerk who had no doubt been suspicious of me from the first moment I mentioned the name Mead. What are you looking for the Meads for? They're long dead. This stuff ain't no good. I can tell. I said trying to diffuse his suspicion and wrap my head around Reginald Marley owning a storage unit here in LA. Is there any way I can see Unit 27? I said not sure what to do next. No. Only people with valid storage ID can go back and see the units, he said as I could see his arms slinking down below the counter. That made me guess that he was reaching for a gun. I didn't want to stick around to find out if I was right. With his free hand, he closed the ledger shut and tucked it behind the counter, and I knew our conversation was done. I walked as fast as I could to the taxi and placed five dollars in the man's hand to drive me to the prison. It was time to talk to the one person who would be happy to give me some straight answers. The one person I was starting to suspect was the only innocent man in this whole town. It was time to speak to Marshall Jackson. It was quite easy to get a meeting with Marshall. I was especially lucky that I came during visiting hours. I had been up for over 24 hours, but it was only 10 o'clock in Los Angeles. The prison where they kept him was a maximum security institution that had multiple security checks before I was able to go inside. I waited with my name tag placed over my left breast by one of the male guards who was extra thorough in placing the sticker there, I might add. And out came Marshall into the visiting area. His frail frame and black skin were the only indications I needed to prove my hunch right. This man was falsely accused. His beard was grown out only to his chin but not covering his cheeks. My guess that he was trying to hide his scar. His skin was drenched with sweat and dirt. His hair was combed back but still wild and unkempt as if he quickly ran a comb through it before coming to see me. As he sat down he looked through the glass at me. What I suspected would be confusion draped on his face. I was surprised to see that it was hope. We were separated by a glass window and were both watched by an officer on either side of the glass. The glass was so thick that we would barely be able to hear one another if we didn't use the phones to talk. When I put the phone up to my ear, the stickiness of what I only could suspect was the sweat and gunk from the countless others who had used this phone before only gave me a small hint of the uncleanliness of the place that Marshall calls home. I couldn't begin to fathom the horrors that he sees inside, and that's before you throw other inmates into the mix. He took a minute to look at me. He examined every part of my being and I couldn't deduce whether it was because I was a woman or whether he viewed me as some guardian angel come to set him free. At that moment, the pressure of that realization took its hold on my shoulders and I carried it with trepidation. Looking at his frail exterior, seeing the marks and bruises draped along his skin, only vaguely hidden by his clothing and prison tattoos, had a profound effect on me for they didn't match the look in the eyes of this man. This was no criminal. I can tell that just by looking at him. But, and as I suspect, many inside this prison are, a man playing criminal in order to survive. And without even knowing who I was or what I was there for, he had put all the hope he had left on my shoulders with just the look in his eyes. As if it was now up to me to crack this case and free his name. Only problem was, I didn't know if I was capable of doing that. I had only come to LA to find the whereabouts of George Meade, but it was evident now that I was thrust into the middle of so much more. He picked up the phone and his entire arm started to shake as if the phone was too heavy for him. 
He placed it on his ear without caution of the dirt and sweat that was on it. Hello? He said, and the light tone in his voice immediately disarmed any guard I had up. It was a welcoming tone of sadness that I last heard in the voice of the Maitre D. My name is Jane Danger, and I'm here investigating the disappearance of George Meade and the murder of his parents. Now let me make this clear. I'm not here to overturn the conviction of the murder of his parents, but I do not believe that they were murdered in cold blood on the steps of a crowded concert hall. I do believe there's more to this story than meets the eye. At the time, I don't know why I reminded him of the fact that I wasn't here to help him. Sometimes it's better to reject pressure before it is put upon you. He simply nodded as he swallowed, and I could tell that a lump had formed in his throat. He teared up almost instantly. No one had ever asked me for my side of the story, he said, and there I realized once again the reality of the situation I had thrown myself in. This was no longer finding cats for neighborhood kids. This was what I had always wanted, and yet here I sit in the middle of it, a case that cost the lives of three people and incarcerated another, and I rejected all responsibility to relieve this man of his current situation. I'm here to listen, I told him in a reaffirming tone. That's when he took a deep breath and began his story. I didn't shoot nobody on the concert hall steps. In fact, I wasn't even at the concert hall that night. I was told to wait for the Meads outside their hotel room, and when they came to leave, I would drive into the docks. I thought they were catching a ferry out of the country. Rich people do rich things, right? I didn't know that when I arrived at the docks, they would be waiting for us, for all of us. He took us all out of the car at gunpoint, and he placed us down on our knees in front of the water. That's when Galvin Young came out of the shadows. He was wearing a brown overcoat, collar up, and hat low, trying to hide his face, but he was easily recognizable. He had a forty-four Magnum in his hand. This could have all been avoided if you only wanted to play ball, he said to the George's parents. Your boy has a gift, and taking that away from me will be taking it away from the world. Then Mr. Meade spit at him and said that their boy will never play for him. That's when Galvin shot him. His wife shrieked to high heaven, then bang, he shot her too. Her body fell into the water. At this point, George was crying uncontrollably. Galvin approached Mr. Mead's body to look in his eyes. I can't describe it. I've never seen something so icy cold in my life. He put two more rounds in the body, then he kicked him into the water and just stood there, watching George's parents float off. He had his men take the kid. Then once he was done admiring his work, he looked at me. He said, good job, boy. You'll be rewarded for this. Then he left. I didn't know what to do. So I got back in my car and drove off. When I woke up the next morning, the police were at my door. As he finished his story, he couldn't help but break down into tears. And that's the truth. That's the truth. He collapsed into his hands, but the phone still hung onto his ears. All I wanted was to make some extra money for my dog. It was impossible to find a job. I... If I only could... Then he stopped and cried hard into his hands. The last adult I saw cry this hard was my mother the night we left our house in Texas. That night I couldn't tell if those were tears of joy or pain, or maybe a little bit of both. Today was a different story. Since the beginning of this job, I had seen many men cry in front of me. Reginald, Jean, and now Marshall. Here it dawned on me that I could no longer reject the burden of the lives at stake, and I vowed to do whatever I could to find some closure to this case, even if it meant putting my own life at risk.
Back in my taxi, I was being driven back to my hotel room and going over the evidence in my head. I was going over every detail that Marshall had told me. I was replaying his story again and again and trying to connect to somewhat distant dots of the record Jean played for me. The Roosevelt Hotel and the storage unit owned by Reginald. The fact that Reginald booked me a room three weeks before ever approaching me, but none of them seemed to make sense. It was clear to me that Galvin Young was behind the murders of the Meads, and had paid a lot of people for a long time to cover it up. I had no clue how high this would go, but it seemed to stretch pretty far and wide. I wasn't too sure if George was alive or dead, but no matter what, I was determined to find out the truth of what happened and make sure that Galvin paid for the murders he had committed. That's when my train of thought was interrupted by the black car behind us that was gaining speed. I looked in the rearview mirror of my taxi to see that the driver was glancing back and forth from the road to the mirror, a surefire sign that this car had been following us. The tinted windows of the vehicle made it impossible to see the driver or anyone else in the car, but I was certain there was another person in the car because the back window was lowering. The car quickly pulled over into the adjacent lane and increased its speed. I noticed now that my taxi was increasing speed as my driver pushed it as fast as it could get. Alas, there was no match for the much faster car that was chasing us. The black car pulled up right alongside us. The back window now adjacent to mine had lowered just enough to fit the barrel of the gun that was aimed right at me. Only for a second, I got a look at the man behind the gun. I only saw the top of his head which was covered by a black hat. He poked his eyes into the crack of the window to get a better look at me. His target, his eyes were covered with black sunglasses. And it was there, in the black sunglasses, that I saw the first 20 years of my life flash before my eyes. I saw my father's drunken rage, followed by sober remorse. I saw my own actions following right in his footsteps. Most importantly, I saw my mother. Yes, I saw her that night when she flashed her cleavage in front of Reginald's face, but I also saw memories of her that I seldom remember. I remembered watching her through my childhood window as she would dance by herself in the backyard after a brutal beating by my father. I remember seeing her as free as I'd ever seen anyone before. It was as if she, she was performing only for me, a private show into the greatest performance on earth. Her moves, her grace, the way she would jump high into the air and then land back down as gently as she leapt. I had never seen her happier than in those moments. Then my taxi car swerved to the right, taking the next exit much faster than we should have, and the car rounded the curve, blazing speed, ramming us against the railing of the off-ramp, scraping the car's flesh up against the concrete, causing sparks to ignite. The good thing about it was that the black car was unable to make the exit, and was suddenly out of sight. We were alone as the taxi driver came screeching to a stop. He looked back through the rearview mirror at me, and neither of us said a word. By looking at him, I could tell that he was catching his breath from the tense moment. I knew that if I continue with this case, then this won't be the only near-death experience I have. But I knew that I had no choice in the matter. After speaking to Reginald and Marshall, I knew I had to push forward. If not for me, then for them. And for George Meade. So I slid the cab driver a hundred and told him to drop me off behind the Roosevelt. Chapter 8. A Glass to Remember I spent the rest of the night reviewing the letters George wrote to Reginald. I went back over them looking for the subtextual messages in each of the letters, yet I kept finding the same clues were leading me in circles. If Galvin Young was truly the murderer of George's parents and the kidnapper of George, then how do I prove it? A sworn statement from the man convicted of the murder isn't enough. More importantly, what happened to George? If these letters were from the last 20 years, then where exactly has George been? And if he was kidnapped and held against his will forced to write music, then how was he able to send letters out to Reginald? In fact, how did he even know Reginald in the first place? 
Unfortunately for me, the letters Reginald gave me didn't come in envelopes with return addresses on them, nor did they ever indicate where exactly George was being held. I looked for any clues that George could hide in the text for location. I tried piecing together the first letter of every opening word, looking for patterns in the font, size, maybe even a hidden codex. They all led to a dead end. Even if George did leave a clue, it would be impossible to know the order in which the letters arrived since there was no date on them. After hours of trying, I remembered I told David I would meet him back at the bar and give him a recap of what I found. I would bet good money that he would never guess what I'd been through today. I hadn't slept in nearly 48 hours, and the alcohol I was consuming didn't help me get over my lack of sleep. It only hit me harder, shot after shot I down without any thought trying to cloud my memory of the haunting events of the past two days. But alas, the more I drank, the less I was able to escape. This was a first for me, seeing that drinking usually meant I was able to forget the memories that troubled me the most. But tonight it was a different feel. Tonight, I remembered all of it. As I waited for David to arrive, I kept replaying the conversation I had with Marshall in my head. That poor man forced to spend the last 20 years trapped in a prison for a crime he had no clue he was committing. I only equated his situation to that of George Meads. That poor kid who watched his parents die in front of him only to be siphoned like motor oil forced to create beautiful music for the man who murdered his parents. Then I kept reliving the moment in the back of the cab when the man pulled out his gun and aimed it right at me. If it wasn't for the cab driver having great reflexes in that moment, then I would not be sitting here today. A dramatic day to say the least. That's when I saw David enter the bar, dressed in his police uniform. He made his way right over to me and signaled to the bartender for a drink. I must have looked like a fool because he couldn't help but laugh when he got closer to me. What? I asked him abruptly and drunkenly. You look like you had a long day. If you could call talking to an innocent man and nearly getting shot at a long day, then yeah, I had a long day. An innocent man almost shot you. Doesn't sound so innocent to me, he said as the bartender slid him a Jack and Coke and by the wink I could tell it was on the house. I wish I can get the same treatment, I said finally picking myself up off the bar to sit upright. Usually I had high tolerance for liquor, but tonight was a different kind of night. This is a cop bar. Anybody who comes in here wearing the uniform gets a free drink. Everybody in here is a cop. Everyone except for you. So come on. What happened with the innocent guy? Why'd he try to shoot you? The innocent guy didn't try and shoot me. I spoke with the innocent guy, and afterwards someone else tried to shoot me. If it wasn't for the cab driver, I would be a dead birdie. I could tell he knew I was very past my limit for tonight. By the time I could finish my thought about being a dead bird, whatever that meant, he already had paid for my drinks and had slid me off the stool. I insisted, however, to pay for my own drinks and slammed his money back against his chest, and that's when I noticed something hard that I had drunkenly mistaken for his muscle. You've been working out. No, well, well, yes, he said with a chuckle. It's my bulletproof vest. Sucker can stop anything smaller than a direct shotgun blast, he said as he pounded on it to show me how hard it was. That may be tested if you keep hanging out with me, I said as I put my own money down on the bar. Come on, let's get you back to your hotel, he said in a calm tone. I fell hard up against the seat of his car. David was already pretty annoyed that I coerced him to drive me to the police precinct early in the morning, and now here I am keeping him up once again with my shenanigans. Yet, he still buckled my seatbelt before making the drive back to my hotel. In my drunk state, I rattled on and on about my mother, making her out to be the devil in whore's clothing. I could tell he wasn't really taking me very seriously, and I could understand why. I was drunk as a skunk. 
You know, you remind me a lot of my mother, he said. How is that? You're both drunks, he chuckled as he said it. But deep down, you're both... I didn't wait for him to finish. I took the wheel and proceeded to drive us both off the road. He came to a sudden stop on the side of the street that jerked me hard and up against the back of my seat. Are you fucking out of your mind? He yelled. You think I'm a fucking drunk? I ain't no fucking drunk, you hard-pressed asshole cop. Oh, I'm the asshole. Look at you. I'm not the one drunk out of their fucking mind. You would be drunk if you had been through what I've been through my entire life. Oh, boo-hoo, Jane. Fucking woe with you. So you had a bad childhood. Who the fuck cares? You know how many people I see every fucking day with the same sob story as you? Oh, my dad beat me. Oh, my mother never loved me. Get over yourself. Some of us had the same issues, but some of us try every day to move past them. My father fought in the war, the same as yours. He was fucked up when he came back, and he took it out on me and my brothers. But I used it to help people, not to drink myself into an early grave. Look, I don't know what kind of war path the hell you seem to have gotten yourself on here, but I am not going to die because you hate yourself so much you got to get fucking wasted every night. I could tell his patience had worn out. The girl he had just met, and only hoped to have a one-night stand with, has dragged him into her mission to drink herself to death. We just sat in silence for a while. Even as drunk as I was, I couldn't think of anything to say. David took a breath and banged his head on the steering wheel, which was obviously his inner battle with his frustrations coming out in a head-banging rage of conflict. Fine. I'll make some calls and see what I can do, but for now, we're getting you back to your hotel and you're lying low. He drove off, and I had become too tired to argue with him. On the next episode of Jane Danger, A Bird in a Cage. Hey, it's David. Listen, I tried to tell my chief what was going on, but he isn't going for it. The jig's up, Jane. I should have stopped you before it got this far. This is getting out of control. Meet me tonight at the storage unit off the highway. What are we doing there? They're going to be closed. Exactly. And who stood in front of us but none other than Galvin Young, sitting at the piano, and by the look on his face, he had been waiting for us. Here I am, Galvin. Jane Danger, Bird in a Cage is an official copyright of Avery Goodwin. Voice recording by Avery Goodwin. Sound mixing by the Avery Goodwin Studio. Score by Abrax. Foley by the Avery Goodwin Studio. Some of the sounds heard here were downloaded royalty-free from pixabay.com.